rhetorical listeners. Welcome in to another episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods, and we are easing into fall here in the Midwest. It's feeling good outside. Are you excited to hear who we have today? We're having a conversation with Lee Hibbard, a graduate student from Purdue University. Lee's doing some awesome work. And it was so great to chat with someone who had lived and spent time in Alabama. But that's not the only place that Lee had lived. He'd been abroad and in the Midwest and he's been all over. And it was great to talk to him and learn a little bit about his life and his work and the work he's doing in the community. Before we get to that conversation with Lee, though, I think it's important for us to pause and acknowledge the work of the next-gen community. Again, this space, this this community that started out just as a listserv, a response to acts on the WPA listserv, they have drafted and published an International Scholars Anti-Discrimination Open Letter And I think it's important for us to acknowledge the labor that went into that and all of the scholars who have signed that pledge, uh, that open letter, to acknowledge that we as scholars have to consider anti-discriminatory policies from the systematic level, the institutional level, all levels. So I think that that's important. I want to read a bit from the letter to you now. We, the members of NextGen, therefore call for all scholars who serve as search committee chairs, members, and beyond to advocate for international scholars and against discriminatory policies impacting them. That there, that nugget is really the gist of what this open letter is about. And it's, a, and it's, it's what NextGen is about too. And the people who started that community are, are, are really, you know, people that to be uh, looked to in, in these moments. And there's another part I'd like to read from the letter now, too. With all this in mind, we call for coalitional action initiated uh, by rhetoric, the rhetoric and composition, writing studies, and technical professional communication community. We call for faculty, scholars, organizations, and other various collectives to find and implement mechanisms of pressure on and, and adequative at departmental and institutional levels. We call for advocacy in pursuit of the rightful diversity and inclusion that is necessary in academia. I want to give like a, a woo right then, right? What, what an outstandingly well-written call to action on the part of NextGen. Directed at really at not just, uh, or, I'm sorry, not just individual scholars, but search committees and all of these other like institutional things. So uh, we want to thank them and the hard work that they're doing. But we also have a conversation with Lee. Lee Hibbert is a PhD candidate in rhetoric and composition at Purdue University. I mentioned that earlier. His research interests include archive theory and practice, game studies and game design, new media texts, digital rhetorics, fandom communities, queer studies, and identity formation. And a lot of his interests intersect with his experiences as a queer transgender man. When he's not in the classroom or playing video games, 
He can be found lurking in the darkest darkest depths of the internet. Ooh. Uh, where he's usually ranting about fictional characters while playing tabletop RPGs and drinking too much coffee. I'm with you, Lee, drinking too much coffee. I have a cup right now. All right, let's jump into my conversation with Lee Hibber. You spent uh, time in the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and that's where you got your bachelor's degree. You got a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature with concentrations in creative writing and British literature. You minored in history and classical studies. Are you from Lincoln? Uh, Not originally. Uh, I moved there my senior year of high school, actually. I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest, but my dad was in the U.S. Navy. So when I was five years old, we packed up and moved to England. Okay. <laughs> and so because of the way that military families work, we bounced around a fair amount. But for the most part, I grew up in England going to British schools, which I think is where that love of British literature came from. I've been absolutely ham for Shakespeare most of my life, especially theatrically. And then when I was 17, the uh, naval office in London disbanded and moved to Italy. And my dad said, well, I have two children and they're teenagers. We're going to just move back to the U.S. so that they can go to college there and not go to Italy and try and learn Italian. So my dad got a job at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, and my mother got a job at the University of Nebraska. So we all packed up and moved to Lincoln, which none of us had ever been to before. It was quite the adventure. An adventure for sure, but also (laughs) a bit of a a culture shock maybe? I would say so. I grew up in a very big city right in the heart of central London, like two blocks from 221B Baker Street. No, really. And moving to Lincoln, which is sort of sprawling suburbia at its finest, was a huge culture shock. It was very different. It was I think I had a panic attack the first time I walked into a Walmart. Like it was so different. (laughs) I didn't know what to do with myself. Fascinating. So (laughs) this might be like a question you can't answer, but I think it's a question worth asking. So what's like the main difference for you in terms of getting an education in England and getting education here in the United States? I would say that in terms of high school education, it was really interesting because the British school system is structured completely differently. And I mean, this was a long time ago because I'm <laughs> I'm not a young person. I'm older. And when I was younger, you take these giant exams in basic equivalent of 10th grade, and then you can go on to more school or you can stop. And so I took these huge exams and it was like, OK, now you're done with high school. But then we move back to the States and it's like, no, you've still got one year of high school left. Mm. And it was very much like, okay, so now what do I do? But in terms of the effort that I had to put in, it was very different. And I also had different subjects to focus in. And I had some huge gaps. Like, I was fine with a lot of, you know, creative writing and English related things, but I had huge gaps in American history. So I had to take like three different U.S. history classes so I could graduate with a high school diploma. Because <laughs> I had the- nothing. <laughs> What's what's it like learning, you know, U.S. history on the fly as, as a 17-year-old? 
I mean, there was some of it that I was at least marginally aware of, but I had never really dug into. It was like, okay, I know who the first president was. I know that this president was this during this time. But a lot of it was like, I have no idea how the U.S. government works. What do you mean there's this whole electoral college thing going on, which was hilarious because this was right in, oh gosh, what was it, 2005? So it was after a fairly recent election. So my parents had like given me the crash course while they were doing the whole bush Kerry debacle. And I was like, I have no idea what this means. And then I go to high school in America. And I'm like, okay, I marginally know more about what this means. <laughs> okay. So you went to high school in, in Lincoln and then you just yep. transitioned to the University of, of Nebraska. Um, mm-hmm. How was that experience? I actually really liked it because I only had that one year in high school, but because Lincoln is such a, it, it's a weird, big, small town. And like half of my graduating class also went to UNL. So it meant that, sure, I was starting over from scratch again in some ways. But I had a ton of friends there who I had made friends with in high school. So it was actually a much easier transition to sort of get settled into college life because I could just go down the hall and see folks that I had had AP English with. Yeah, that's probably that familiarity helps a lot of, of, of people coming uh, from Lincoln into the university there. Mm-hmm, definitely. Are you had concentrations in creative writing and British literature. So uh, I don't, how, how did that work? Like, how, did you take certain classes? Where, where was your heart when you were in Lincoln? Um, I definitely took certain classes. I took a lot of extra classes in a way because they were something they tested out of in terms of AP. So it was like, okay, you've got these credit hours left over. And usually they encourage you to declare some sort of focus in your major. At least they did when I was there. And I started in creative writing. But the more I took courses on Chaucer and Shakespeare, Milton, all of these other aspects, I realized that there was still a huge element of what I had read in my childhood that I found fascinating and generative and interesting. So I ended up taking enough courses that I basically got a double concentration in both of them. So I just took enough classes that it counted. (laughs) And Shakespeare has been something that's been a part of your life, I think, at each of your stops, right? Absolutely. Uh, It's been the least prevalent at my current stop, but it's... uh, been a huge thread in my life, which I think makes sense. Part of growing up in London was very much being invested in theater culture. My mother is a music professor, and she was very much encouraging us to explore those creative pursuits. And so we would go to a lot of performances, especially since they would be able to find like half price tickets for things because there were always deals. So I remember distinctly just being maybe oh seven or eight years old and sitting in an open air theater in Regent's Park watching A Midsummer Night's Dream, which I barely understood because I was a child. But it's so visually slapstick it's such a funny play that it really spoke to me i think and so you see a midsummer night's dream you know at regent's park as a child and then uh-huh. years later at uh uah theater like you become the assistant director for that production of a midsummer night's dream how was that how did that work into the work you were doing at uah the uh Again, I think that the Shakespeare thread always sort of followed through with me. And what really picked up for me in Alabama was uh, a friend that I made in a linguistics class, Mandy Hughes, who was uh, a little bit ahead of me in the master's program. And uh, her focus had always been uh, theatrical 
early modern literature. And so she was talking to me and she said, I'm starting a Shakespeare company. And I said, wow, that's a huge thing. She's like, yeah, there's not enough people doing Shakespeare the way I want to see it done. So we're going to do that. And so it was sort of a combination of joining this ragtag little theater company and working with them and then also throwing myself into UAH theater because the theater department at the time was housed under sort of the English and communications department. So everybody who I met in my classes, whether it was graduate students or undergrads, a lot of them were also heavily involved in the theater scene. So it was very easy to sort of parse my way into that space. Oh, I see. So I, I don't, I'm not sure if it, it obviously wasn't like the Shakespeare scene in, in Huntsville that took you to UAH, but jumping from Lincoln to Huntsville is a pretty big jump. So how <laughs> did you, yeah, how did you wind up in, at UAH? Well, at the time, as cheesy as it's, and I'm going to be completely honest, uh, I was in a relationship with someone long distance. And so when I was looking for something new to do with my life, I was in this horrible dead end job. I was working at like a survey company for medical health. It was miserable. I hated it because it just didn't really jive with what I wanted to do with my life. And I started seeing this person. And then I found out that they lived in Huntsville. And I started doing some research just sort of offhand, and I found out that the program at UAH was actually really good. They had some really interesting aspects of their master's program, and I had thought about going back and getting a master's for a while because, I mean, you get a degree in English, and it's a bachelor's degree, and you go, okay, I've, I've been a fry cook at a bowling alley. I've worked in survey generation and corporate healthcare. I could really see myself going back to school and trying to figure out what I'm doing with my life because I don't know what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> so I, I sent in an application. I studied for and took the GRE in about a month, and uh, I got a teaching assistantship. And I packed up everything uh, along with my best friend and her cat, and the two of us moved down to Huntsville. Incredible. <laughs> So I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, being in Huntsville in 2013 through 2015, there was also I was in Birmingham, Alabama at that <laughs> point. Uh, I'm from Alabama as well. So if you'll indulge me and podcast <laughs> listeners, I, I apologize. Uh, Lee and I will try to move on quickly, but <laughs> I think it's worth exploring a little bit. What was your experience like living in Alabama? How did you react to the culture? What was it like and how did it propel you forward uh, as you study now at Purdue? It's really interesting. And a lot of times when I talk to people now, several years later, and they say, oh, you lived in Alabama, that must have been awful. And I'm like, honestly, it was the complete opposite. Because when I moved down to Alabama, I was still trying to figure out who I was as a person on multiple levels. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my career. I was dealing with a lot of questions in terms of struggling with my identity. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted. And Weirdly enough, Huntsville is this strange little blue pocket in a very red state, especially the circles that I ran in, in the university and the theater scene. And I found myself serendipitously in a very accepting and welcoming community. And it gave me a chance to realize that I actually love being in front of a classroom. I love teaching students new things. I love the chance to get back into theater because I was always very theatrically minded as a child. And weirdly enough, and people always look at me like I'm crazy when I say it, but I came out as trans when I was living in Huntsville because despite being in such a conservative part of the United States, I was in a very insular, supportive community where I could look at 
my colleagues and say, hey, it turns out I'm a, a trans man. I need you to use these pronouns now. And everybody said, okay, that's cool. We're, we're going to do that. And that was sort of the huge thing that I got from my time in Alabama. I had the space to better find myself. And I had a very supportive community, which I think that, and this is just something that I feel about a lot of queer communities is that especially in more conservative places, queer people tend to stick together. We find little pockets of safety and we gather and we maybe have to hide ourselves from the rest of the world, but we can be open about ourselves together. And I think that that was what I found in Huntsville was this very accepting community. And it meant a whole lot to me that I was able to actually explore those things. And I think that, again, it surprises a lot of people that I found that in Alabama, but in the most conservative places, you can find these little liberal, welcoming, accepting pockets of people who will just roll with the punches right along with you. Wow. Um, As someone who grew up for 30 years in Alabama, just uh, south in Birmingham, and oftentimes, you know, internally rejects like this hate towards that state who which has such a polarizing history you know it absolutely does it really makes me feel good to hear someone talk positively about their experience there yeah i think that uh i don't remember what it was but there was a huge political situation recently where something awful was happening in alabama and i saw a whole bunch of hate on my twitter and a bunch of you know very stereotypical things being said about the south and i got really upset because i mean i may not be southern at heart, you know, I'm originally from the Northwest. I've lived all over the place. But even just those three years there, you see a different side of the South that a lot of people don't realize is there. And a lot of it is that people in the South aren't all like these stereotypical bigot rednecks that people like to make stupid jokes about. Like they're just people like you and me. And a lot of them are, you know, poor and disenfranchised and they don't have a voice when they really need one. And so the impression that other people get of this state is completely backwards 90% of the time. And so I'm always the first person to jump up and say, hey, 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 if you've never lived in the South, you don't know what you're talking about and you need to stop. (laughs) Right. Lived in the South and and I might have fought fought those battles in the South as well. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, well, I don't want to harp too much on Alabama, but it's really <laughs> great to talk to somebody else who spent some time there. After your time in Alabama, you move to the Midwest. You've got the Nord- Northwest. You've got kind of the Central America, Central Central America, I'm, Central, <laughs> Central United States covered in Nebraska, the South and Alabama, and now it's time for the Midwest and per, at Purdue University. Um, yeah. How did you wind up at Purdue, and what are you doing there now? Uh, I wound up at Purdue partially because of my mentor at UAH, Alana Frost, who is one of the few retcomp people in a very literature-oriented department. And when I started talking about what I wanted to do with my master's thesis, which was very sort of rhetoric and games focused, she said, you should focus in on this and I'll give you these rhetoric and composition related resources and you should take your presentation of your thesis to C's. And so I applied to four C's in, uh, yeah, it was the 2015 C's conference. And uh, I went to Florida 
And while I was there, I actually made some connections with colleagues of my people who are now colleagues of mine who uh, were part of the games special interest group. And they said, oh, you do games. You should talk to Sam Blackman. You should reach out to the Purdue program. You should take a look at what they have to offer. And one of the other professors in UAH's department, uh, Dr. Ryan Weber, is a Purdue alum. So I talked to him and he said, yeah, Purdue is great for the sort of things that you're looking for. And so after a year of doing some adjuncting work and getting all my stuff together, I applied to Purdue and I got in. So that's what led me to that area pretty much. Interesting. It, it sounds like uh, it was it was a perfect match then to uh, to move up to Lafayette. To, I still don't know how to say that word. Say it again. Uh, I usually say Lafayette. Lafayette. I think my southern Lafayette is coming out a little bit when I try to say that word. Yeah, that's also, always the in- instinct. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I'm going to have to put it on a list with a couple of other words that I have struggled with. Um, I think we all have those words, though, so I'm not embarrassed. So uh, let's move now and talk a little bit about your publications, because I know that you have sure. one that came out in March uh, 2019, and that was called Redesigning the Tabletop. Queering Dungeons and Dragons, and that was um, a first-person scholar special issue on queer making and design. Um, could you talk a little bit about that project? It seems as though um, queer studies is something that that runs throughout your scholarship. It really does. It's of course something very close to my heart. A lot of my personal pedagogical and professional rhetorical ethos is very much driven by the fact that I am a queer person in a not always very queer friendly world, but I'm also not the only queer person out there in a not very queer friendly world. And one thing that has always helped me is that sense of community. Like I was talking about down in Alabama, I was able to come out because I had this queer community. And so in a lot of ways, the scholarship I do is part advocacy, part social justice. I very much want to give back to the community that continues to give to me. I want to work with those groups. And part of how I do that is very much integrated into the game studies work that I do, because there's been a huge resurgence in especially tabletop role-playing games, where a lot of people who may not have necessarily been part of the scene before have now had access to being able to learn how to play it and use digital tools to play together even when they couldn't before. And a lot of those people are people with queer identities who are enjoying a very creative pursuit of telling stories together. And a lot of times those stories are a lot more free form than other popular media or other ways that we can engage with popular media. And so part of... (laughs) I I always say that there are two things that take up all of my time. And one, of course, is graduate school. And the other is the Dungeons and Dragons campaign that I run every other week. And so it's very much a huge integrated part of my life. And when I saw that they were doing a a special issue on queer making and design, I I jumped at the chance to talk a bit more about something that's a huge part of my life. Fantastic. I will admit I'm not a huge Dungeons and Dragons player. But my, my institution, ISU, has a group of graduate students that also play biweekly, and I don't know how to get an invite. So, that's <laughs> a, <laughs> so I'll work on that. Um, another, but you, you've also got a publication forthcoming uh, later this year, and that is a collaboration with Michelle McMullen. And the title is The Fandom Rushes In, Multiplicity and the Evolution of Inclusive Storytelling Through Fandom Participation in the adventure zone. I have to say a lot of that 
title is Greek to me. So I'm gonna <laughs> leave it <laughs> I'm gonna leave it up to you to talk to our listeners a bit about what that project is. Yeah, of course. Well, the project started because um, Michelle and I, uh, Michelle very recently graduated from Purdue. She's now teaching at NC State and, of course, being fabulous at it. But the two of us bonded initially over our love of several podcasts that we listened to, one of which was The Adventure Zone, which is a D&D storytelling podcast that's run by the McElroy brothers, which I started listening to because my current partner was super into it. And as we listened, there were a lot of themes that I noticed that were, again, it's back to that sort of queer themes, inclusivity, storytelling. And podcasting as storytelling is really interesting because it has a level of audience participation and interaction that a lot of other media does not. And so mm-hmm. what Michelle and I found really interesting was the way that the fandom interacted with the McElroy brothers and how they told this story while also responding to the fans because a lot of the fans would interact with them because the podcast doesn't come out every week. It came out every two weeks and there would be new developments in the story and fans would start drawing art. They would reach out and tweet about it. The McElroys would name characters after people who tweeted about the show. And so much of that community built up over the years that it's basically an integrated aspect of the podcast on multiple levels. And if you listen to it, there's a lot of conversation about how the podcast became what it was. And a lot of that is what we refer to as this multiplicity of different paths that weave together and become this communal experience, which is not only very, it's very podcast oriented and something you don't see in a lot of other types of media, but it is also in a lot of ways, very queer oriented, which despite the fact that the creators of that podcast, it's, you know, four cisgendered heterosexual white men from West Virginia, they listen to their fans who many of whom are extremely queer and are very vocal about that. And so they took steps forward to include more of those themes in their stories. And they said, we may not have these experiences, but our listeners do. So let's reach out and see if we can tell their stories as well, because we have this platform, which is, again, a huge part of the work that I like to do. And it's a huge part of any sort of networked participatory culture. That project sounds extremely fascinating and extremely compelling. And um, I think that you probably presented with a lot of questions concerning authorship and ethos and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of the questions of authorship are fascinating, which I've also done a fair amount of research into fandom studies work. And that was sort of the uh, thread that I brought in in that particular project, because fandom as a participatory culture does not necessarily always work with the consent of the creator of uh, intellectual property. Fans will create their own content just sort of sometimes as an homage, sometimes to push back against things that they don't necessarily like about something. It's not always a positive relationship. A lot of times in fandom circles, you will find people who engage with a piece of media and say, this is terrible, I can do it better. And then they create these little communities around interpreting the characters differently, sometimes for good or for bad. And it's interesting because in a lot of cases, creators don't necessarily listen to fans. There's a very clear sort of division, a clear binary between creator of content and a fan of that content. And so when you take a piece of media like The Adventure Zone and you see it have this weird level of interactivity and collaboration that is not previously present, it's sort of a I wouldn't go so far as calling it a full-on paradigm shift in fandom circles, but it's very much a different move 
rhetorically towards having a way to interact with the fan base in a certain environment, which is not necessarily always the case when you've got like big movies like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or TV shows like Supernatural or comics. And, you know, people can reach out to the creators and say, hey, I don't like the way you wrote this character, but the creators aren't going to do anything about it because, I mean, it's it's Disney. How are you going to say, hey, Disney, I don't like the way that you wrote Spider-Man. You should fix it. Disney says we're Disney. We, we don't care. You're you're one person. We're, we're not really bothered. We're going to sit over here on all of our money and not worry about you. Oh, but, Disney. <laughs> I'm, I have a lot of opinions. I don't, I, I think that a lot of my feelings about that are very much wrapped up in this weird sort of late capitalist experience. And it makes a lot of media consumption very difficult because we want to enjoy these products, but they are products. And I think that the difference between, for me at least, podcasting and sort of the movies that I can go see is I don't have to pay $10 to listen to a podcast. It's right there on my phone or on my computer. I can load it up on Spotify and listen to it while I'm driving. It's free entertainment. It's right there. And I don't have to pay all of this money to deal with it. And it's like that level of we are presenting something for free then allows for this deeper level of interaction because you get, I, I think the the way that Justin McElroy refers to it is he says that listening to a podcast is like talking to the friends in your ears. You get to know these people. You're a lot more intimately familiar with how they are with each other and just in general. It's a much more casual environment and it's a lot more content in a lot of ways. The Adventure Zone is, you know, hundreds of hours long at this point. It the first arc ran for years, and over time that kind of serial podcast situation has allowed for more interactivity it's allowed for more participation and it's allowed for more growth in a weird way i don't know i feel like i'm rambling a little bit at this point but well i'm letting i'm letting you ramble lee and i'll tell you why because i presented a a, a panel uh, at computers and writing in east lansing this year and i know you were there too on podcasting, on true crime podcasts and author yes. ethos, on in that uh, specific genre of podcast. So everything that you're talking about, I'm just sitting here over here. The the wheels are turning. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> sounds like a lot of what you are writing about and working on in terms of fandom is very similar to what uh, the work that I'm doing with my team on uh, true crime podcasts. The genre is just different. And the, this true interactivity and, and narrative making to, together is something that it, it runs throughout podcasts. It really does. Yeah. You're right about that. Uh, there's one other thing I think that's important to mention. I'd love to hear what you think about this. It seems as though as a podcaster, right, and talking to someone who likes podcasts and consumes a lot of podcasts, it sounds like sonic consumption is kind of cyclical now, right? We move through our media the last hundred years. Yeah, I, I think that that's very true. This is something that I think about a lot as someone who's very focused on digital rhetorics and the way that we interact with technology because we start in 
this like we've, we've got the age of radio and then we start to add visuals to that and it keeps sort of cycling further and now we have a whole new audio medium that is both radio and at the same time not radio and there are some podcasts that also have visual elements but it's not a necessary component of it and i think that it brings up some really interesting questions about the sort of media that we want to both consume and interact with i think that it brings up some interesting questions of access i think that it is an interesting look at how technology has and continues to evolve. And I think that it's got so many different questions. And the biggest one for me is always, where are we going to go next? What, yeah. what, will, what will propel us forward as we engage with this form of this media? Yeah, absolutely agree. I think that you are onto something, too, when you think about the intimacy of this specific platform, digital platform, because, you know, you have to um, – the body is impacted, right, to in order to take place in this space and that you have to wear headphones, right? I guess you could listen to it, like, in your car or something like that. But I'm thinking, yeah. like, what I'm doing right now when I work out, I have it, my headphones in, right? It's uh-huh. completely different from being extended and separate from, like, a television screen. Yeah, it's a very different experience experience and it is a much more intimate experience in a lot of ways if you're watching a movie or a tv show it is a very whether you like it or not it can be a shared experience if i'm sitting in my living room and i have something on the tv my partner's going to come in and say oh what are you watching and it's a lot more easy for him to say oh you're watching this tv show or this movie if i'm just sitting there listening with headphones in like i could be listening to anything there's a lot of different cues and visual things and it's really interesting because as much as I love podcasts, I feel like I have to actively use a lot of brain energy for them in a certain way, which is why I also love listening to podcasts and stuff when I work out because I'm doing something with my body, but I'm not doing as much with my mind. But the things that I would normally do, like scroll the internet or write something or watch a TV show, don't necessarily jive with that particular action in the same way that driving is a very active but also inactive right. action that we do. And I think that it's, it's, it's a weird, weirdly paradoxical. sometimes. It really is. Uh, Lee, before we move on, I want to congratulate you on becoming a PhD candidate in June. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what you're teaching right now in uh, English 419 multimedia writing and how what you're teaching now kind of connects to your dissertation project. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, What's interesting about uh, 419 as a course, multimedia writing is offered as part of the professional writing program here at Purdue, which I'm a... uh an administrative professional for as well. I work as a technology mentor this year for professional writing. And so I am very sort of invested in that program. And 419 is one of those weird little courses that is offered that instructors are able to sort of play with and mold to their own specifications because multimedia writing, of course, is such a huge nebulous, it could mean anything you want it to mean thing, Mm -hmm. right? And so it means that when we think about what we want to teach those students, a lot of us as instructors are given free reign to sort of tailor it to our special interests because there are a lot of different lenses that you can apply to make multimedia writing interesting. So like my colleague Trinity Overmeyer will teach multimedia writing through the lens of big data. My colleague Tony Bushner will teach it through board game design and entrepreneurship. Those are just a couple of examples. And Uh what I ended up settling on was the sort of 
research that I'm doing for my dissertation, which is very much focused in archival practice and digital archival practice specifically, because as I thought about different forms of multimedia writing and the way that we work in different forms of media, a lot of what came to mind was, well, first of all, social media, because it's such a varied process, how we interact with different platforms and what sort of rhetorical moves we have to make in those platforms. And if there's one thing that I'm a strong advocate before, especially in a professional and technical communication setting, it's that our students as young professionals need to be aware of the impact they have when they're in a digital space, especially a communal social digital space like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of these things that many of them will use without even necessarily thinking about the kind of impact that that has on their lives. And so what I always start the semester with, this course, is basically a social media inventory. What my students are doing today, actually, I teach later this afternoon, is I have them present a curated version of their social media. I have them look at one or more social media platforms that they work with mm-hmm. and say, how do you do this now? How do you want to do this differently? What has changed? What has stayed the same? What do you want to change? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times we put stuff up on our social media without necessarily thinking about it. And even if it's something we do passively, like the the algorithm will drive us in certain directions. I've had students do presentations on their YouTube watching history, because if you go on YouTube and you look at all of the information that you've got in there, the algorithm will guide you towards certain videos. It will cycle through new and different things. It's the same with any sort of music that you listen to. You know, your Spotify radio will generate different things according to what you've been listening to. And it's something that students don't always think about. And so as they start to look into it, they start realizing more and more, oh, I do engage in these specific curatorial practices, whether it's, you know, doing a thumbs up, thumbs down on a piece of music or what I like on my Twitter feed, it affects how I interact with things and how I present things. And so I have them basically do a presentation and a write-up of what they do and what they want to change and if they want to change anything. And it's it's really interesting to see students engage with something that they may not have necessarily <clears throat> considered in an academic context before and see how they want to change because every now and then, and especially there's always at least one student who goes, I had never thought about this before, but I realized that if I'm going to want to be employed someday, I'm going to have to change what shows up on my Twitter feed. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. I have teaching technical communication, our introduction Mm -hmm. to that right uh, now. And we're doing some similar stuff uh, with looking at our social media profiles and things like that. So uh, this might be another indulgence, but (laughs) I also think that listeners will glean some um, knowledge from this. I wonder how do your students respond to talking about their social media platforms? I think a lot of times they start with some hesitancy because it's a deeply personal thing. Even if we engage with social media casually, it's still a more intimate and private form of curation. You know, we we may judge and choose what we present, but sometimes, especially if we're using a personal account, we just throw whatever we want up there. And a lot of times students will use their accounts for very specific purposes or they will look through their accounts and see – that they have used them for specific purposes. And uh, a student of mine just this week presented on her experience on Instagram and shared the calculated and curated way that her Instagram shifted over time as she came out as trans. And it was very interesting to see 
how much she had previously put thought into her social media and how much she was continuing to put thought into her social media. And it was very much at the same time, sort of an intimate sharing and a disclosure of something that she didn't necessarily have to share. That's the thing about this assignment is I always tell my students, you can pick any social media you have. And if you're not sure if it counts as social media, you can ask me, but I almost guarantee it will. And so the fact that students feel comfortable sharing these more intimate aspects of their lives in a classroom setting is something that I find really significant because, again, it's not just a huge part of my teaching ethos and my pedagogy. It's also something very significant about social media and how we do put ourselves out there in a way that is a lot more personal than many other forms of communication because maybe we think that we have one particular audience or maybe there's an audience we're trying to reach that we haven't quite figured out how to get to. And I think that in that vein, this kind of critical thinking about social media means that if anything else, I'm hoping I'm giving students the tools to uncover more about themselves and engage more with what they are posting, not just for like their future benefit in terms of getting a job or whatever, but just to help them self-reflect on what social media is for and how it isn't necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just a thing that we interact with. I love that like neutral, you know, nugget that you're giving them to early on, right? And I, I do similar things as well. I think you have to really to kind of facilitate discussion too and, and yeah. alleviate those concerns. Yeah, absolutely. And I like framing it from a curatorial point of view because one of my biggest things and one of the things related to my dissertation work is that archival practice is not the most well-known thing out there. We understand the concept of an archive, but a lot of people, when they think of archives, they think of a library. And libraries and archives are not necessarily the same thing. They interact in very different ways. The people who work with them work in very different ways. And this is significant mostly because in a lot of ways, the internet is an entire archive. It's full of information that we have to try and parse through. And there's so much information floating around on it that we don't necessarily have the same control or access to it that we would in a physical repository or archive. And so when I look at it from a curatorial point of view, I talk to my students a lot about how their selectivity is a huge part of understanding how information is presented and how archives work. And so from that point, after this unit, we move into looking at the way that archives function just as they exist. I have students pick a couple of archives that they find particularly interesting. I encourage them to sort of move towards their own special interests and see what they find about how information in those communities is preserved, how technology is preserved. And I mean, archive, again, is such a huge nebulous thing. I've had students look at some of the information and collections at the Purdue archives, which are extensive. I've had them look at digital archives and the things that they come up with are fascinating because they engage with how people navigate these archives and how it's possible to go through them and find the information that you need and how much time that takes and how much energy that takes. And the fact that it's nearly impossible to parse through all of it in even just a lifetime and what that means for the role of archivists. And it's all sort of this weird nebulous thing that connects into how we interact with information and how we share information and why 
preserving our history is important, whatever that may mean, and how preserving history is not just as simple as dumping a bunch of stuff on archive.org and going, oh, it's in the Wayback Machine. We don't have to worry about it now. It's there because you don't know that it's always going to be there. There's got to be more nuance to it than just we're going to dump all of this in one spot. Now we're good. (laughs) (laughs) So I got to ask real quick, how is the work that you all are doing in 419 connecting to your dissertation uh, project? A lot of what I'm doing with my dissertation project is very archives related. I'm very focused in how archives work in uh, not just game studies, but the queer game studies Uh field, because a lot of what happens with archives is, and this is something that uh, Sammy Morris, she's the uh, archivist, the head archivist at Purdue, she talks a lot about the gaps and the silences that you find in archives, Mm. the things that are left out for one reason or another, and because a lot Mm. of the stuff that is preserved in archives is very much part of one single cultural narrative, because that's what people preserved in the past. You see a lot of white voices, you see a lot of male voices, you see a lot of straight voices, and there are a lot of moves in archival work right now to try and uncover these voices that have been left out. And so what I've been doing is looking into the voices that are being left out in one very specific field, and but it's a field that is very sort of cisgender, heterosexual, white male dominated, which is game studies. I mean, when we think about video games, a lot of what we think about is gamer culture. It's a very cisgender, heterosexual, white male field. There's a very specific kind of person who dominates that field, but it, that is not necessarily the only group that engages with those things, and it is not always the case. And a lot of video game history is actually heavily rooted in queerness, and there's a lot of that that has not yet been studied. And there's been some work done by uh, Adrian Shaw to put together an entire archive of queer games, and um, she created an exhibit that was on display in Germany this past year and then wrote a book about it. And so a lot of what I'm looking at is how in something like game studies, people are preserving those histories, which especially since games are so weird and difficult to preserve because a lot of times they run on very specific hardware. So if you have a game from the eighties that only ran on one system, if you can't find that system, you can never play that game. And I know some people are like, so what it's a game. It's like games are important. Uh Like this is the hill I will die on. Games are important. I don't care. Games are important. (laughs) Games matter and play matters. And I don't care if what a person defines as a game is like sitting down on Saturday and watching a college football game or playing poker or sitting around with your kids playing a video game or having a Nintendo Switch or even the old school Atari games. Like the way that we interact culturally has that element of entertainment to it and play is an interactive way of processing that and i don't know game studies often finds itself having to justify its existence because people go who cares about games and so like we all do care on some level we just don't always see it it doesn't always click with us that what we care about is somehow game related and i mean again it doesn't really matter what specifically you're invested in a lot of different things out there have those game elements. And just because you're not one of the people sitting around playing the legend of Zelda, like you still care about other games and nothing, nothing was more evident 
to me than the fact that, I mean, I went to undergrad at the University of Nebraska. Like, the stadium becomes the third largest city in the state on game day. People care. (laughs) People care about sports. Sports are games. Games are play. Like, it's the sort of thing that we don't always realize is connected, but is absolutely connected. And the things that we value in terms of play are so varied, but also so important. They are things that we invest our time in. It's like any other sort of entertainment media. It's just a little more interactive than a lot of that entertainment media. Lee, I got to be honest with you. I could talk to you for hours about (laughs) everything that you've talked about. There's so many connections to the work I'm doing and want to do, but I don't think our listeners would be quite as interested in that right now. Uh, So I want to ask, is there anything we haven't covered that I can edit in? Not that I can necessarily think of off the top of my head. Okay. Honestly, we hit the big things. <laughs> <laughs> so you feel good about it? Yeah, I feel good. All right. Well, then I guess we'll put it out there. I'll All go right. ahead and stop recording here in a minute. Okay. But I don't want you to get off the phone yet because I got a lot of things to say to you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, rhetorical listeners, that was my conversation with Lee Hibbard. He he's a cool man, doing some cool work, and man, I think it's so awesome to dive in and talk about living in the South and growing up in the South. And man, anyway, so I uh, I want to let you get off of here now. I want to remind you to reach out if you. Want to be a guest on the podcast? We have the Emerging Scholar Series and we have the Conference and Event Promotion Series. But we hope to be debuting a new series coming up pretty soon. So be on the lookout for that. Okay? All right. Don't forget to buy some merch. I'll tweet that link out as always. We're trying to raise a little money to hit the road and go to other conferences around the area, around throughout the country. So contribute to that. Okay. All right. Well, until next time, rhetorical listeners, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically. Rhetorically.